Charisma Quotient. I'm your host, Kim Seltzer, a dating and makeover expert, where I will help you build confidence, make connections, and find love from the outside in. So you date someone you're crazy about, right? You feel passion, attraction, admiration, and eventually fall in love and become a couple and perhaps even get married. But eventually, over time, love fades and you grow apart. What prevents this from happening? (laughs) I mean, from maintaining that drug-induced bliss you once felt for your partner. And more importantly, is there anything you can do to avoid that train wreck? And the answer is yes. As it turns out that in all relationships outside the fairy tales we grew up on, take work, lo and behold. And when you do the work and recognize relationship-killing behavior and communication habits, you will be better equipped for a long-term relationship that can lead to marriage if that's what you want. And one of the things I noticed as a therapist is that we all have patterns that are created that repeat itself. It's like a broken record over and over again. And just when you think you've cracked the code, you do it again, right? It's almost like Groundhog's Day. You might find yourself engaging in these similar behaviors and similar relationships. Here's the thing. Our past is connected to the future and the choices we make, the patterns that get created. And that's why I love helping people break those patterns with new strategies that get results. That's why I call myself a dating strategist these days, more than a coach, more than a therapist, because we all need that, especially later in life. And I always say, if you want to change your story, you have to go back to the beginning and flip the script. Your patterns start from the minute, the minute you say hello to someone. In fact, I remember I heard something really powerful when I was in grad school as I was learning to become a therapist. A professor once told me that often the very thing that we are attracted to in the beginning of dating someone is the very thing that does them in in the end. I mean, think about it. So like maybe you're attracted to someone who you're who's highly flirty, life of the party, extroverted, social, maybe that person ends up annoying you in the end because they're never attentive to you when they're out and they're more interested in being the life of the party than your partner. The truth is you can't change that person. You know, I always say that, but you can look at your reasons for being attracted to them and what you're doing to attract them. So a lot of my clients who learn these behaviors and communication patterns while dating, and this is where I love like really working with people in the beginning, are ones who end up in the healthy relationship. And one that stands out, you might have heard on my podcast because she just came on to talk about her success story. She, I worked with her over two years ago, and she needed help breaking those bad patterns and ended up cracking the code. And now it's getting married this summer. So I'm super excited about it. But, you know, back then when I first worked with her, she had a hard time setting boundaries. She tended to overshare her insecurities. She had a strong need to have a boyfriend to gain validation, which affected her selection process. So in her desperate attempt to find it, she would engage in passive aggressive behavior. She was highly critical of herself and her men and not expressing her feelings. So she would end up with these narcissistic and self-absorbed men, which of course would crash and burn. This, she all realized stemmed from her critical mom. You know, she was replaying that record by attracting and engaging the same dynamic. And as she learned to equip herself with new tools when she was dating, this is where we had to start with her. 
She learned how to express her feelings directly, setting boundaries, pacing herself, leading with higher self-esteem. She landed a great guy in her life who cares deeply about her and now they're getting married. So in order to truly change your relationships for the better, it's important to look closely at these harmful behaviors when you interrupt these patterns, actively engage in healthier ways of interacting. You'll end up feeling close and content with the partner in the end. And you can keep the spark alive in your relationships, but it does take work. And with me today to help me talk about some of these pattern behavior busters is an amazing guy who learned through his own journey and now helps others save their relationships. He is a relationship coach, writer, and the man who coaches husbands on how to avoid divorce. I love that from the New York Times. His writing has been featured in HuffPost, the Sunday Times, the New York Times, and many more. His blog, Must Be This Tall to Ride, I love that, has a dedicated following and has reached millions of readers. And now he has an awesome book out. It's called This Is How Your Marriage Ends, which I'm sure he'll talk about. Matthew Frey, are you there? I am. Hi. Hi. (laughs) Oh my God. I don't even know where to start with you. I was just so excited about this conversation because there's a lot of directions. And I think you and I've had similar journeys with our divorce and we've kind of learned the hard way, right? And I always say our our past is connected to the future, our adversity, our gifts in disguise. And you know, it's not until we go through it, we're like, oh, there's the gift. So I'd love for you to share like your story. I know it started with the kitchen sink or dishes or something like that, but I'll tell I'll let you tell it. (laughs) Well, the way that I tend to begin this conversation when people say, hey, like help explain like who you are. Yeah. Nine years ago, nine years ago, my marriage ended and I just I took it really hard. And it was at the time and remains, I suppose, the most difficult thing that I've ever encountered. And it felt so bad. And I was so afraid of a repeat scenario in the future as this like newly single guy. I had to protect my future self from having this happen again. And in that process, and to be fair, I wanted to solve the mystery of how my marriage ended. I wanted to be able to understand what my role, what my contributions to that were, but they were really one and the same. And I just believe the combination of reading books, of research, just you know, online and reading different articles and engaging in conversations with people I knew, married and unmarried. And then the blog was huge. I started drinking to numb the pain and called a therapist <laughs> one night. And she said, this was a few months after I was separated. And she's like, Matt, you need to be writing this stuff down. And she obviously met journal, like an adult in a private notebook or something. But I just kept drinking and I put it on the internet. And while that might have been like foolish and, and idiotic at the time, it ended up being this sort of like beautiful career starting thing where a bunch of people were providing really critical feedback. And that feedback was, wow, Matt, your stories about your relationship look, feel, and sound exactly like the stories in my relationship. Mm. And then we all sort of have the cathartic, I'm not the only one moment, which is like really, really healing and really valuable and really empowering. And once I realized people were paying attention, I stopped making it so much about me. And I started trying to like serve something a little bit bigger than myself. And I really, this is a passion project for me. My parents split when I was four. Um, My marriage ended when my son was four, my only child. And I don't know, I really, really would like to contribute positively to relationships doesn't have to be marriage to relationships that people want to be in. I'd like for them to not become unhealthy and toxic. I'm perfectly fine with people ending marriages and ending dating relationships Mm -hmm. anytime they want for any reason they want. But if two people want to be together, 
what I hate, what I find really tragic is the two people that love each other and want to be together, not being able to make that work. I really believe we can identify these like nuanced things that can help us stay connected. Yeah, I love that. And because I like you, I remember when I was going through it too, I was like searching for a blog like you or something because you feel so alone and you feel like what you're going through is the only thing, (laughs) like you're the only one doing it. And so just the fact that you created a community and connections out of this is just incredible. I think it's helping so many people. And I wondered, you know, when you were going through it, was there a breaking point when you knew that you had to do something different? Do you mean when my marriage was falling apart? Or do you mean in my early days of trying to like, quote unquote, do the work? I think when you're when your marriage was falling apart, because I wondered if that was something you thought about, like, oh, there's something that I need to do to start doing the work. Do you know what I'm saying? Because a lot of times you just chalk it up to a bad marriage. But at what point was it like, okay, I got to do something. I got to change something about myself. People ask me all the time. I promise I'm going to answer your question, but Mm -hmm. this is like the lead. People ask me all the time. And it's usually women asking about their male partners. And again, these things are not exclusively a male, female thing, but I think mathematically, statistically speaking, they sort of show up most commonly in this dynamic that I experienced in my personal life. So a lot of women reach out to me and say, Matt, I would really like for my husband or my boyfriend or my male partner to have the same experience you had, the same Mm -hmm. sort of enlightened moment realizations that you've had. I feel as if that would really help me and really help our relationship. And I strongly agree with that. And my feedback is always, near as I can tell, the discomfort of not doing anything different has to appear more painful than the discomfort of growth and change and evolution. I was comfortable because I always thought I was fine. I always thought I was good enough. I always thought I was smart enough. I always thought I was nice enough. I thought it was crap that she was sort of like Mm -hmm. suggesting that I was this bet. And she wasn't, by the way, this was just my brain 10, 15 years ago talking that she's criticizing me that she's picking on me, that she's nagging me, that she's quote unquote, finding new things to complain about is the way that I processed this in real time back then. And I was not motivated to do anything different until it got so uncomfortable, so painful that I had to do something different in order to not stay stagnant in this awfulness. And that's truly what I believe the story is for everybody. So yeah, I was in the guest room for 18 months. Not that I got kicked out. I chose to go there. She Mm -hmm. told me at dinner one night, she wasn't so sure about me. She wasn't so sure about the marriage. And I pouted like a child and I made it entirely about me. And instead of trying to get to the heart of what I might be doing or not doing to contribute to that, didn't even bother with that. I just felt slighted and mistreated because she was, quote unquote, threatening the relationship, right? Mm. It's like you married me and now you're like threatening the end of our marriage after I promised the rest of my life to you. It was just, I had a unique ability to make everything about me. So I moved into the guest room because I wasn't going to sleep next to somebody that in my like moral outrage, wasn't going to sleep next to somebody that wasn't sure if she wanted to stay married to me. And of course, as you know, you understand on a very expert clinical level <laughs> that did nothing for restoring trust and connection in our relationship. But near the end, I would say three, four months out from her actually moving out, which would have been the new year transition from 2012 to 2013, for being precise. I finally got serious about at least beginning the research process. I found a book, Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever encountered it, called How to Improve Your Marriage Without Talking About It. I don't hold that up as like the greatest book ever necessarily. I also don't want to demonize it. It has a very Mars-Venus dichotomy to it 
Yeah. And uh, not everybody's comfortable with that because they feel as if it stereotypes a little too much. And there's sort of like sexist vibes with the Mars Venus thing that not everybody likes. And I get that. I really do. But it's still the book that did it for me. Regardless of that, it's the book that sort of flipped the switch and said, wow, it's the book that gave me the I'm not alone moment because they were able to describe relationship dynamics that looked, felt, mirrored mine. And I'm like, oh my gosh, if this is this universal where people I've never met can more or less describe to a T my relationship, this suggests this can be extrapolated to like almost everybody. And I had the I'm not alone experience. I had the my wife and I aren't beyond saving experience, but but we were. I just didn't know it yet. As you also know, people who feel like they don't have power, like they're not understood, like they're not loved, considered, validated, cared for in a relationship, check out many, many weeks, months, sometimes years prior to actually exiting the relationship. Like she needed to know exactly what was going to happen next before she could execute her plan to move Mm -hmm. on. And I think she was trying to give me a little time to sort my stuff out, but I'd exhausted whatever goodwill I'd had left. Yeah. Oh, wow. There's so many things I want to comment on what you just said. I I think the thing that really, I think was what you were starting with is that you get to that breaking point where enough is enough. And, you know, before that, there's that fear factor. And when people are in fear, it's that fight or flight, you know, it's not me, it's him, or it's him, not me, or just standing still, not doing anything kind of thing. And I think that you're right in order to change. And I say this all the time, you have to be in a state of discomfort. Otherwise you're just staying the same, being comfortable, but comfortably miserable sometimes too, you know? And so I love that you work towards it. And to me, that's the empowerment when you started recognizing things about yourself. Cause yeah, you couldn't change your wife or, you know, but you could change yourself to get a different result. And I think that's, what's so powerful because I was curious and, and I know you talk a lot about like, you know, just benign behaviors we do that you don't really think about that might kill love through your journey. Were there things that you started recognizing in yourself of those behaviors? And then now you help others with. I mean, I recognize, I want to be careful. I want to precisely answer your question. <laughs> I, the way I normally talk about this is just all my BS that I brought to the table. Yeah. But do you mean it on a deeper level where I identified maybe something that I felt was maybe a little broken or something in sort of the emotional health, psychological world about me? I mean, it could be anything. Cause you know, to your point, there's a lot of things we do that we don't think are killing our relationship. It's like, oh, well, that's just me. If they don't like it, forget it. But then were there things you were like, okay, yeah, I need to change this because I see this showing up again and again and again. And if I want... (laughs) Yeah, not (laughs) during. Like, you know what I mean? No, Mm -hmm. absolutely not after. Yeah. After I had to get really serious about abandoning all of these sort of sacred cow beliefs about my decency, about how I had this belief and I'd, I'd never formulated it. I sort of figured it out later, right? In the last five to 10 years. I think I had a belief that because I never tried to hurt anybody, that nobody should ever be hurt by things that I'm doing, which made me sort of a defensive and validating D-bag. Anytime somebody would say, hey, Matt, I sort of don't like that thing. And I always chalked it up to it being their problem. You know, they're the one with the problem. If they don't, it's such a, I don't want to like demonize anybody out there that maybe has the same habit I had, but (laughs) I just think it's a kind of an awful way to be. It's just an awful way to be. It's I figured out I also don't want to like adhere to sociopolitical tropes that annoy people. And I could because people are, are really offended sometimes by this idea of privilege, particularly when it comes to race or gender. Mm-hmm. But I was blind. Here's how I would say it. I was blind to the female experience. If we're going to stereotype 
because yeah. I don't know what it's like, right? I've learned so much about what the average female experience is going out to meet a strange man is so radically different than the guy going out to meet the strange woman in the context of safety, in the context of all the things that might happen. I never had to even think about something like that. But frequently women have to like text a couple different girlfriends or a sister or a mother and be like, I'm going to be at X, Y, and Z place. And if you don't hear from me from, listen, guys, if like you're listening to this and you've never had to do that before, that's privilege. If you've never been scared getting off an elevator or walking through a parking lot at night, it's privilege. If you've never been worried about what the police are going to do when you get pulled over going 10 over, then it's privilege. And that I spent my whole life in that state of sort of blind obliviousness to the pain and the hardships that other people endure just all the time. And I had no respect for it. And it truly wasn't because I was an awful person, although the math result of that behavior, that philosophy is awful, I think. Mm -hmm. It was not intentionally awful. I really did aspire to be good. And so once I learned how to see this, I really started to do the work. And now I I try to look extra hard to bring some self-awareness and some humility to these moments in these conversations, particularly when Today, I'm still prone to defensiveness when someone says, hey, Matt, what about X, Y, and Z? And I feel like a little bit attacked or criticized. I'm inclined to be defensive because I'm never trying to upset anybody or hurt anybody or do anything harmful. But I need to like stop and I need to listen. And I need to really understand where whatever the feedback's coming from. Maybe it isn't about me at all. But if it is, I'd sure like to eliminate another blind spot when I'm accidentally hurting somebody. And I think that's a really healthy way to sort of like show up in the world and more specifically, poignantly in our personal relationships. Yeah, that is so powerful. And I see that play out a lot. You know, it sounds like one of the behaviors you really got to change was thinking outside yourself, you know, and really being empathetic to women and other people and how they're feeling instead of how it should be for you. And well, it's just her, you know, like just kind of chalking it up to not blame, but just circumstance or whatever it is. And you mentioned this nice guy thing that shows up with so many people, even women too, by the way, it's like thinking, but I'm so nice. I'm doing the right thing. This shouldn't happen to me kind of thing. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's another behavior that can be a relationship killer sometimes. I bet. And probably just on like an attractiveness level, if we're talking about single Uh people dating, I'm sort of uniquely aware of, of that, given that, I mean, this is more or less how I show up. I'm, I'm personally fine with it. I'm fine. I'm fine being rejected <laughs> for, I'm not insecure right. about that. I'm insecure about a million things, mm-hmm. which I also want to talk to you about. Oh my I God. heard you earlier when you talked about your client that wanted to share insecurities. I'd like to learn that lesson from you in this uh-huh. conversation if possible, because I'm somebody that I like the idea of not hiding things that we're afraid of. I spent my marriage and my life up until I felt so bad that I wasn't afraid anymore, age 33, wow. age 34. I'd spent the first 33, 34 years of my life afraid sometimes to tell the whole truth for fear of judgment, rejection, to be judged as, as, as weak or anything. Like, again, if I was like sad or afraid, or if I felt bad because somebody did or said something, you know, I might like act tougher than I am. I like the idea of like the fake tough guy that like, where's the mask? (laughs) Where's the mask? He's really not affected, but secretly he is, but he thinks his his job is to present strength. And I think that we do this in our relationships. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's some dishonesty in the pretending to be strong, even though it doesn't come from like this evil con artisty place. Mm -hmm. I I just believe strongly in if we're to have trust and if we're to have intimacy, 
we need to be as honest as possible. And it doesn't just mean telling the truth. It means not withholding truth sometimes, specifically, I think, in the context of marriage and long-term yes. togetherness. But I'd be so interested in where that dividing line shows up for you, where mm-hmm. my desire to be uncomfortably honest with somebody so that she, they, whoever, like whoever your person you're interested in is, uh-huh. can decide, I just think they need to have all the information. Why would we want somebody to choose us by representing a fake version of ourselves? And once I had that realization, I'm like, dear God, like I wouldn't want that. Like, how could a relationship ever last if I have to pretend to be this fake version of me for the rest of my life? I want to be all the way myself. And I want somebody to reject or accept me on that, like on those merits. But part of that for me is like, hey, this is a thing I'm afraid of or insecure about. And I feel like that's like not such a horrible thing to share. But I trust you more than I trust me. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, so I want to, I'm so interested in, yes. in, in what you mean on the spectrum of honesty and disclosing things that we're insecure about. Because oh, I might I have that. offered right alternative advice and I want you to set me straight so that I can help people be better. If- well, the, I mean, the answer is we're both right. And I'll explain in a second because I'm so glad that you extracted that from what I said. I, I kind of call it the pendulum effect with vulnerability. So what you're talking about is being vulnerable and being real. And when you do that, you come across as authentic and you are, you're authentically you. So you attract more authentic relationships. And that is a hundred percent true. And this is why I love this conversation of like, when I work with people in those beginning stages, as I'm polishing them up, (laughs) getting ready for marriage, so to speak, and equipping them with the tools so that they're successful later, so much of it is pacing. And what I find happen, and this is where the pendulum comes in, is that a lot of times people have a hard time regulating how much is too much, (laughs) you know, with the vulnerability. So like in the instance of my client, she was throwing out all her insecurities right on the table from the minute she said hello to someone, almost as if it was a test. Like, can you handle me? You know, it was almost like in a manipulative way. And she didn't even realize she was doing it, but she was doing it to try to ward off that pattern that was happening. But it was almost like, it backfired on her. So she would throw out all these things and the guys would be like, like the good guys would be like, whoa, like, okay, too much information, TMI, you know? And the ones who wanted to manipulate her back, they loved it because then like, I can save you kind of thing. Now on the other side of the pendulum, now we have somebody who doesn't share anything and is highly guarded and is all focused on the other person. And What happens is they attract a lot of lopsided relationships because they're a great audience for someone who likes to be in the limelight kind of thing. And then that person never gets their needs met because they never expressed it in the beginning. So it's somewhere in between, right? Like it's being able, because what you said is so true. It's being able to share something that's authentically you in that moment. But in those beginning stages of courting, it's not like, let me tell you about my mother and why I hate her, right? Like it's about, hey, I love this soup. It reminds me of my grandma when we were young and like just something that's endearing to you that's more personal in nature. So there's time, there's a place, there's content that gets shared that's appropriate to that phase in dating, if that makes sense. It does. The word pacing was brilliant and I wrote it down and I don't think I'll ever forget it. That makes so much sense to me that, I mean, everybody can have like the same values and be on the same page and want the same things, but pacing still is relevant. The idea of 
sort of walking side by side, hand in hand and not letting one person get too far ahead or too far behind. Yes. That will also disconnect people. Again, even if you're trying to head to the same place, staying in lockstep, so to speak, is, is useful. That's really interesting. Yeah. Well, and when you do that, you're able to kind of check in with yourself on what's right for you, what's wrong for you. How are you feeling? Because I think so many people get into relationships. It's like a tornado, either too much, too soon, too fast. And then they're, they have no idea how they got there. And then they lose themselves in the process or it's fragmented or disconnected. It never kind of moves or progresses. So that pacing is so crucial, not just for the partnership, but for you as the dater to say, hey, what do I like? How do I feel kind of thing? So no, I mean, this is such a juicy conversation. Well, I'm curious too, like, what is your philosophy as we're talking? What's realistic and what's romantic? You know, like there's almost like a difference between what can we realistically think about in terms of how a relationship should go and what are kind of the normal things that couples go through that we can control and the behaviors that we look at versus like, well, isn't that taking away the romantic part of it? Like, what's your philosophy? I I think we could go back and forth on this. And I hope that I answer your question the right way. So when I was married, the idea of planning a date night or planning, talking about and sort of formally having a conversation about let's engage in physical intimacy later. Forgive me for talking like 43 year old. Oh, you can do it. Yeah. But I don't want to say, I don't want to say I'm too shy. Oh, we got to work on that, Matt. (laughs) Yeah, no, probably. I told you insecurity. It's a real thing. See, Um, now that was an appropriate use of insecurity. We all loved you for it. So, okay, continue. Fair enough. (laughs) And yeah, so I thought that was stupid, right? I was, I believed in this idea of like passion and spontaneity and all of that. But, but in real life, when you have, you know, 40, 50 hours a week in an office, both of you, and you bring a child into the world and you've got other competing interests that you have at night, you can go a really long time without connecting in that way, without doing anything thoughtful or quote unquote romantic for somebody else. And I think so. It's, I think it's really dangerous mm. in my estimation to believe it should organically happen. And there's another facet to that. And you may take exception to me. You understand way more about psychology than I do in your work, in your academic career, certainly in professional career. But I encountered very early in this personal growth process, this idea of hedonic adaptation. Hedonic adaptation is commonly thought of in the context of financial wealth, material wealth, where they they talk about the hedonic treadmill, how we always want more. We get a raise. It feels great. We get a new car. It feels great. We get a new house. It feels great. And then you get used to it. Hedonic adaptation is the phenomenon of our brains adapting to positive life changes. And then we normalize them. And I think we do it with negative stuff too, which is how we get used to awful things that happen to us and we are able to cope. But we have this process where we get used to things and then it doesn't seem as cool anymore. The good thing, the new car, the new TV, the new house, the new paycheck, the new anything. I have my dream job right now. The thing I literally dreamed about, not the relationship part of it, but being a published author was all I ever wanted to be when I was a 10-year-old. Nobody gets, I mean, you know, a very small percentage of people get to do exactly the thing that they sort of dreamed about. It's not that I don't feel cool at all. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm also sort of like intellectually aware of why. We get used to everything. And then it doesn't seem as neat anymore. I used to pick like a pet hair from the carpet in my brand new car. And now it's just, it's just crap all over it. It's terrible. So true. Anyway, 
this is what happens to people. And so I think some people might take exception to that phenomenon happening in our interpersonal mm-hmm. relationships with somebody we love. Mm-hmm. And I get that because people are not things, but I don't think that that changes. But breathing is so important. We do it 23,000 times a day on average. It's one of the most valuable mm-hmm. things we do. It is also the thing mathematically, I believe we've done more than anything else in our life, aside from maybe like a brain neuron firing or something. And we don't know that we breathe most of the time. It's not even on our radar. So what I'm saying is things that happen all the time over and over again become sort of invisible. They show up in our blind spots. I think the common way to talk about it is we take it for granted. We take our health for granted, the use of our arms and legs for granted, the fact that we can breathe for granted. I think sometimes we take our romantic partners for granted. There's a really long way of saying, I think we need to be aware that this happens in long-term romantic relationships and get really intentional about doing things that inspire feelings of romance and I love you and chemistry and dopamine and serotonin and all of these feel-good chemicals that happen. And there are ways to do it. And guess how many times I flirted with my wife while I was at work, while she was at work? No, not yay. I mean, the, the concept is yay, but guess how many times I did it? Like, when we weren't together, guess how many times oh, we were when at you a party together. Mm. It never happened. Yeah. Guess yeah. how many times we were at like a bar or a party or we were having people at our house. And like, I whispered something in her ear about how excited I was for when everybody else was going to leave. Never, like never. And mm-hmm. I'm so sort of ashamed. And that was part of like my shyness and my insecurity, to be fair. Like that was the reason it wasn't like I was like, intellectually against that, but like, that is, these are little things that I think we can learn to attach to this positively impacts the person that I'm with, the person that I love. It increases the amount of trust and connection and desire, perhaps on their part. If we want to talk about this notion of showing up in a way that mathematically results in people being attracted to us, mm-hmm. seduction, if you will, I think that we need to bring that to our marriages if we, if we value monogamy that doesn't suck. Yeah. To be fair, I'd love to find out what your take is on this, but it, it sure seems like this idea of open relationship polyamory is becoming a much bigger, more out in the open, much more talked about thing. And I think it's a fascinating conversation that I don't know what to do with because I get it in a like mm-hmm. mental, emotional way, kind of. I feel like it'd be really hard to watch this person that I was in love with being shared with somebody else, A, not watch, but like be aware of it. And also, I believe so strongly that monogamous relationships are the healthiest way to raise children. Mm-hmm. I think it's the best model we have for raising like healthy children. I think it's really critical for our world being like a decent functioning place. I don't want to sound like a moralist or anything, so I'm not against people doing whatever they want to do. But raising children in a healthy, secure, stable environment, polyamory don't play nicely with one another. Mm-hmm. And that's fine if nobody has kids that do that, but a lot of <laughs> Yeah. Oh my, I love, well, going back, I know that could be a whole other show, right? The Because <laughs> that is, it, that's a whole other kind of off spin yeah. to what we're talking about. And I think going back to what you said of really realizing and knowing that drug wears off in the beginning and that's normal. Like that is a normal thing. And I think, and I don't know what you feel, but I almost feel like it's intensified in this day and age because we're so used to instant gratification that it wears off even quicker. I'm seeing that now too, because we can just have the next thing. So like Bumble and Tinder and all the dating apps speak to that, right? Like you get sick of something, swipe to another, you know? And so I think that also how that plays out in the brain, and there's been a lot of studies on this, the same 
dopamine hit that is found when you're doing the jackpot, you know? So yay, I win. Yay, I win. You know, like, and so you can keep winning in the, the courtship phases when things are amazing. But to your point, if you go in knowing that it will wear off, that's part of life. But how can you keep the spark going by dating your partner over and over and over again? So that's why I love teaching just dating. And, and I've done podcasts and I've even worked with couples. It's like, how do you date your partner again? To your point. And so ladies, put on the red dress. Guys, like, don't let your acid wash jeans and pleated pants like overtake you and not go shopping for 10 years, you know, like, and if that is you, please call me because that that's a relationship killer right there. But really, like, I think these are little things that, that we can do and we should do. And you mentioned, and I want to talk about your book now, because you mentioned that there are some things that can help you move forward and change some of these behaviors. Do, can you talk a little bit about your book and all that? Yeah, I'm happy to. I don't know if we have time really to deep dive, so I'll try to do it in the briefest way possible. The premise of my work today is that, and forgive me, like all the people that are just want to be single and date and think about it in that way. This is specifically for people who want to make long-term committed partnership work, whether that mm -hmm. is just nice. choosing to be with one another or to be married. Like that is the focus of my work. Although I think that this has applications for all human relationships, even non-romantic and I focus in my coaching work today with the people that hire me to work with them on habit formation, because I don't want people to think they have a character defect, Love that it. they're bad and they need to become good, that they're weak and need to become strong, that they're dumb, they need to become smart. That's not it. You have habits and they accidentally, in my estimation, erode trust in your relationship. And I have this belief that trust is more important on the power ranking than love for making relationships last. I think that people end relationships with people they love all the time, yeah. all the time. But I think trust can be the thing that combined with love makes you go the distance. And I think we accidentally erode trust. There's all the obvious ways we erode trust through betrayal and through lies and through infidelity and all of that. And it's really bad. But I think everybody sort of intellectually gets that. The things that I think we miss is the way we erode trust in our blind spots, these sort of mm -hmm. small paper cut moments. I'm sort of have the tiniest bit of internet fame for this idea of she divorced me because I left dishes by the sink. And that's a conversation around what's allowed to matter to somebody else. It's little, tiny, what most people would call petty or inconsequential or benign things that, that cause arguments in the average relationship all the time. Mm -hmm. And so that's a breakdown of trust in my estimation that happens. Whether we intended to cause harm or not, the math result is somebody's hurt and now they're coming to the other person. And we might experience that as being nagged or being complained to. But best case scenario is somebody we love is asking us to cooperate with them and helping a bad thing or a painful thing go away. And again, it's experience different depending on tone and word choice and all sorts of things. But I just want to be somebody and I want to encourage everybody to be somebody that has a successful conversation around that. Because the idea of repairing, like a moment of disconnection, a moment of broken trust is so critical to the longevity, to the glue that keeps people together. And I know that seems silly maybe to a lot of people, particularly guys that maybe are a little bit like me, you know, 10 years ago, because when she would talk about a dish by the sink, or when I would do something sort of like playfully sort of give her a hard time in front of her friends, and she didn't like that very much. And she told me about it. And I had 50,000 other people that's hyperbolic, but a lot mm -hmm. in my entire life that I'd done that same thing to. And not one of them ever said anything about it. Nobody uh -huh. ever acted wounded because of the identical behavior. So the statistical anomaly in my life, the outlier was my wife. So 
for me, it's like, that's so easy to dismiss her as this hypersensitive, over-emotional person. It's like so bad for trust in the relationship. I'm not a marriage advocate. I'm not even a long-term romantic relationship advocate. People get to do whatever they want. If they want to be together with somebody forever, mm-hmm. I beg them to like take seriously this breakdown and repair process over the little things and the magic words validation. We don't, people confuse it with agreement and it's not. I don't have to agree that the dish by the sink matters. I don't have to agree that the toilet seat mm-hmm. being left up hypothetically, even though that was never a thing that I did. They don't have to agree that that's a big deal. It's not about that. It's about a person feeling as if the stuff that matters to them is something that their romantic partner is going to take seriously, that they can trust that person to support them and have their back. It's not safety so much, and I'm in physical danger. It's safety more in the context of, is this a reliable thing? Is this relationship healthy and consistent and sustainable? Is this person healthy, consistent, sustainable? When I think about being with this person for three years, for five years, for 20 years, does it feel like that's going to get better or that's going to get worse? And when we're the guys that are like blowing her off about the dish by the sink or the toilet seat being left up, we absolutely project to be somebody they can't count on five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, no matter how inconsequential we think these little isolated incidents are, it's evidence that we'll always choose what we think and what we feel over what they think and what they feel. And it makes sense to me that somebody would not want to be with somebody who perpetually caused them to feel that way. I left evidence for my wife for 12 years that I would always choose me, the thing that I believed, that I wanted, that I felt over her. I didn't think of myself as somebody doing that, but it occurs to me in hindsight that that's precisely what the sum of my actions were. And so we have to consider people when we make decisions, that's habit, one of the two habits. We have to validate people when they come to us and they say, hey, something's wrong, I hurt. Because all I did was tell her she shouldn't think what she thought, she shouldn't feel what she felt, or I would defend myself on the merits that I didn't try to cause any harm. And those are the three invalidating response habits that most people have when they disagree and erodes trust in a way that will end you five, 10, 15 years from now. That's what's so scary about it. It doesn't feel like a big deal today, but it ends you later. Oh my gosh. I love it because you're ending where we began with the the toilet seat and the kitchen sink and all that and the dishes. And you're right. It's not the dish. It's not the toilet. Those are symptoms of the bigger problems. And it's very gestalt of you. I know you don't know what (laughs) the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. That's basically what gestalt is. And so it can just grow as a big monster you know, all these little things that happen. And I think what you're talking about, I love that validation piece where I'm feeling it's like respect, you know, it's like really having that deeper respect. You don't have to agree with someone. You don't have to have the same opinion as someone, but if you can respect your partner, then you can go pretty far. So Matt, Matthew, love this. Trust. Yeah. Yeah. Love this. Any parting words of wisdom and where can everybody pick up your book? I'll definitely put a link in the show notes for sure, but please, you know, share where everyone can find you. Yeah. I don't think I have any parting words of wisdom. I just encourage people to challenge their own beliefs and assumptions. The most valuable thing that I ever did was start to question whether I might actually hurt people, even if I didn't mean to. Is that possible? Exploring that idea, I think is very useful whether we're dating, whether we're co-citizens, whether we're married. Anyway, my home on the internet is matthewfray.com. That's Matthew with two T's, Frey, F-R-A-Y. I, all the social channels can be sort of linked to from there. And then my book, which you mentioned, thank you so much for doing that, came out at the end of March in North America and in the United Kingdom, coming out in Australia in a couple months and some other languages in the next few months. 
It's called This Is How Your Marriage Ends, A Hopeful Approach to Saving Relationships. And sort of try to deep dive on all of the things that we talked about and then some other things as well. Awesome. Well, you just said something pretty wise for someone who said, I don't have anything wise. <laughs> that was why. Thank you, Matt. It was so awesome. I could just like go on and on with you and maybe I'll have you back and we can continue on the conversation. So I'd love it whenever you want. Thank you so much. Awesome. And thanks for joining me today. You listening, this has been the Charisma Quotient and I'm your host, of course, Kimmy Seltzer. And remember, you can build confidence, make connections and find love from the outside in. And if you want to know more, make sure you go to my site, KimmySeltzer.com. And also remember to pick up Matt's book, This is how your marriage ends. And if you would like help busting some of these behaviors that might be causing you to attract unhealthy patterns later on, before you get to the altar, then click the link you see in the show notes to schedule a free call with me. I would love to help you personally map out some strategies to change that. And who knows, that one call could change your entire course of your life. And remember, working on you is working on your dating life. That's all for now.